look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? Well, another exciting week. I'm glad Davos is over, I have to tell you. Yeah. Well, yep. First, before we kick it, I want to say congratulations, my friend. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we were um, selected as one of the top 50 advisors in the country uh, by our peers and by, our, by the industry, so we're quite happy about that so congratulations my friend and to you i thought i saw you listed there as number six good for, excellent an excellent well, it's piece us. they just didn't want your picture on it that's, that's all. true you're pretty <laughs> you are a pretty man uh let's talk about uh you pretty man and a little bit about what's going on in the show today <laughs> um we're going to talk about uh a little bit about the continuation on our divorce series and um you know lots of questions around particularly in gray divorce um how do you separate assets yeah this you know, one we're going to talk about a, the legal perspective right because we've talked about the you know a bit of the financial yeah. we talked about the the uh, mental health perspective of it and you know the emotional side of things we want to make sure that we also talk about the legal one and next next week we'll talk about the uh the tax perspective because that's important as well and then we also we talk about nafta yep. this is really um at the hearts of canadians there's been a lot of topics here a lot of conversation um both on the pro and con of getting rid of nafta so uh, we're going to have some conversation about that. And then there's been a lot of myths or misunderstandings, as I like to call it, about RRSP. We are in RRSP or, or RSP tax season mm-hmm. now. And so uh, people are, are are confused, I think, on the benefits or drawbacks of having RSPs. And we hear about this all the time. So we're going to have uh, our tax expert on the on the. Uh, on the show talking about what is it really better to get an RSP or a TFSA? Yeah, or use them all. That's a great piece. Uh, we've had a busy week, as I said, in Davos. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about trade. But uh, bring us in, President Trump. I'm here to deliver a simple message. There has never been a better time to hire, to build, to invest, and to grow in the United States. America is open for business, and we are competitive once again. The American economy is by far the largest in the world, and we've just enacted the most significant tax cuts and reform in American history. We've massively cut taxes for the middle class and small businesses to let working families keep more of their hard-earned money. We lower Okay, so we're all agreed that he's the biggest cheerleader for the U.S. for sure. Well, he has to be. That's his job. That's his job. I, I like I like the change in tone from "Make America Great" does not mean "Make America uh, doing it alone." I think is what he said. Yep, that's what he said. Um, so the tone is changing, my friend, from uh, protectionist viewpoints directly that it's only America to now, well, maybe not only America. <laughs> okay, before you get too carried away with President Trump's comments, there was a little bit of confusing, perhaps conflicting information coming from senior administration officials in Davos as well. Uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, through the course of the week, talked about the fact that he likes a weak dollar. We had Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, talking about the, you know, the, the soldiers are going to the battlements here for, uh, for trade war. So... Skills testing question or multiple choice question multiple to start choice. this session, okay. okay? I'm ready. Are we in a currency war? Mm-hmm. A. Are we in a global trade war? B. Okay. 
C, all of the above. Okay. D, none of the above. Um, how about E, who the heck knows? <laughs> <laughs> you really can't, based on the Davos or previous comments, there has been no policy except for one small tariff on solar power panels and, uh, and <clears throat> washing, washing machines, machines. Which I need one, so thankfully not, not affecting us here by the United States. Unless it's coming through the U.S. via NAFTA, <laughs> then you're messed on that one. I'll go LG. Uh, <laughs> so so um, that's, right now there hasn't been any action. It's been talk. And so I, I have to, if I was to pick out of that multiple choice mm-hmm. question, it would be E. Who the heck knows? We don't know yet. You can't. You can't say it's none of the above. That, these are my fears. When I list my four in our presentation yeah, last sure. Tuesday, yep. I talked about the four fears that I have, and one of them is trade war. Yep. And trade war doesn't happen overnight. It's not today we have NAFTA, tomorrow it's done. Right. Right? There's, there's a runway. You have ample time to see things coming down. Now, you have to have, be ready for it. Keep in mind, for us as Canadians, NAFTA is a big deal. Globally, mm-hmm. NAFTA is not as important. No, exactly. It affects us in Mexico, right? Correct. It really does. Correct. Where the impact happens globally is the trans... No, Trans-Pacific or the you. replacement of the Trans-Pacific. Is yeah. the European uh, trade yeah. uh, work is, Canada, that are going on yeah. with CETA for yeah. us, but yeah. globally it's yeah. Europe. People also forget that the largest economic superpower in the world is not U.S. Correct. It's the Eurozone. And there are concerns about how people trade with them. This is why they're a Eurozone and not individual countries, because they're a block and a group that's that's huge. And so... When you hear currency talking, and, and uh, Angela Merkel came out and talked yeah. about that, saying that we're now entering to a currency war, uh, when you start hearing about trade issues and trade wars, it doesn't benefit global economy. Should this go down the path, this is one of my fears, yeah. we're going to see an economic slowdown uh, globally, and that causes a concern for the valuations of stocks as we see them today. Yeah, and there's a lot of confusion. We did have the European Central Bank um, with their rate decision, their monetary policy decision on Thursday. In the midst of all of this, there was no change that was expected, but you know the communication subsequent to um, you know to the announcement was really around. There's no benefit to a currency war, right? And there's the- and we had sorry uh, Macron from France, we had Merkel from Germany, a bunch of world leaders speaking about the fact that it is not good for uh, for the global economy to have isolationist and protectionist practices. So. Uh, to your point, no, nobody really knows. And this is where I get concerned about investors um, are are now talking because of the, the way that we're hearing record profits and record numbers on the markets um, of people saying they want to go heavy into the stock market or aggressively investing um, with all that risk that out there. Regardless if it happens or not, it's on the table. It needs to be addressed. The question is, what if? Right. What if one of those situations happened? Trade war, currency war, um, China slow down, um, war, yeah, right, armed conflict, any of those kind of uh, concerns, yeah. and it may not be nuclear war; it could be any other type of war. Yeah, just as armed well, conflict, yeah. right? Um, what happens? Did you say inflation? Inflation, yeah. yeah. What else would the, what would happen to your money? And are you prepared to to bet that it's not going to happen? And if so, be prepared for that if your bet's wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think people need to reassess. We're hearing. Out on the streets when I'm, or when people call us up from listening to the show, they they ask about my opinion on the stock market and where things sit, and and I and I I have a concern for people who are saying I'm a hundred percent stocks, or I want to be more aggressive because I want those returns that are in there. Just be careful that you're you're not going to get the phone call before this stuff happens. So when that does happen, 
um, be prepared for the downpour, downpour of your portfolio if you are aggressively invested in the market. Yeah. So, I, I mean, as the bond guy and the, so the risk manager on our team, it's interesting because what I'm going to say in response to that is is you have to pick the uh, the strategy that's appropriate. That So you often say, Faisal, and I like this line, that in the absence of risk, return is the only measurement. Correct. Right? So if you get uh, into a position where you're chasing return and not um, uh, considering the risk, then you've made a mistake. If you've considered the risk and understand the downside and are comfortable with that, you have not made a mistake. You've made a strategy choice, right? Correct. And so um, <clears throat> what we always talk about is make sure that you are you are uh, reviewing your strategy on a regular basis. And if you are going to make a change to your strategy, I don't mean a tactical adjustment in terms of you know moving some money from the U.S. to Canada or to Europe, whatever. But if you're going to reduce fixed income exposure to increase equity exposure, a strategic change in your overall uh, portfolio, you better have good reasons for that and understand the implications of that decision. So there's nothing wrong with being 100% stock, nothing wrong with being 100% GICs, there's nothing wrong with any of it, as long as it's made with an informed choice, uh, working backwards from a specific goal. And and, and I want to kind of just turn to one little point, point before we have to go for commercial break. Um, I uh, We had the opportunity to take a look at the Canadian Pension Plan's yeah. uh, report, yep. the quarterly report, yep. and saw their portfolio yep. of how they're invested. Right. I challenge anybody to do that. If you want a copy of it, I have a copy of it. I can send it to you of how they're invested. Um, it is completely different than the average Canadian investor. Yep. And what concerns me is that there's other advisors out there who are saying, we do retirement planning and pensionize uh, yeah. your portfolio too. Um, uh, that, that whole concept of we do that too. I challenge you to to look at what they're recommending and seeing uh, compare that to the pension plans and how are they different yeah. and why are they the ones um, that have that know more than I don't know the Canadian pension plan and so forth. I think there's those are the things that we have to be aware of when it comes to investing, especially when you transition to retirement. I'm not concerned about a 25 year old who's got 40 years to invest and can handle these types of rides. When you're when you're entering into retirement, you're near retirement. You can't afford an error like this because of some advisor or somebody saying, yeah, just do it my way because my way is the right way. Mm -hmm. Look at what the pension plans are doing out there. I just picked on the Canadian pension plan, but there's a whole bunch out there. If anybody wants their report to compare their portfolio to, I'd be happy to provide it. Well, and I'm, you make a great point. I'm not going to belabor it, but um, I think the, um, the, the onus is on people to educate themselves. And education starts with asking the question, why? Right, And so if you go and you analyze how pensions and endowments, if, if you're at that stage of life where you need to pensionize your assets to live on it, right? Yeah. Yep. If, if you go take a look at some of these different pension plans, whichever one you choose, and it's different than your portfolio, just start with the question why. Understand the strategy. That's the most important point, and then start working backwards from the goal. An excellent point. Now, to that point, we're going to talk about some of the changes that we feel uh, can have a material impact in your investing style and your lifestyle as you approach or start moving into retirement. And we're doing that at our upcoming seminar. On Tuesday, February 27th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. You want to know more about what's going on with NAFTA and the implications to our country? Tune in after the break. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Uh, NAFTA has been in the headlines a lot. A lot of concerns about this. Currency swings. What the heck does it all mean? We've got uh, Ian Lee, Associate Professor at Carleton University, Sprott School of Business, to try to help us interpret what's going on. Ian, welcome to the show. Uh, my pleasure. Tell us what's Canada's current plan with respect to NAFTA. 
Uh, we want it. We need it. Uh, we are a small, open trading economy. Uh, I know we think we're a very large country, and we are because we're the second largest geographically in the world. But in terms of population and GDP, we are smaller than the state of California. Right. Uh, 36 million, 2 trillion. California is 39 million, just to put it in comparison. And, and we need uh, to maintain a high standard of living. We have to trade with other countries. So this is very, very important to us. 75% of our exports go to the United States. We're highly yeah. dependent on, upon this. How did Donald Trump's comments affect the negotiations? I think he's trying to uh, I'm, uh, to soften us up, uh, uh, both Canada and Mexico. He's trying to, cons- uh, to achieve maximum concessions. He prides himself, of course, as this guy that does knows the art of the deal, and he's mm-hmm. a negotiator. The larger point, though, it's not just about his ego, as some people have suggested. He ran over and over throughout the campaign. That's all he talked about was trade and how if he got elected, he was going to take charge of the file and stand up to those Mexicans who are stealing jobs of Americans and the Canadians and the Germans and the Chinese, because that was his narrative for the entire campaign. Nothing was more important. And so he wants to have some wins in these NAFTA negotiations that he can campaign on in the off-year elections in the United States. All 435 members of the U.S. House are up for re-election, one-third of the Senate, and just about all the governors. So he is going to be out campaigning, and he wants some victories to announce to uh, his base when he's yeah. campaigning. Do you think NAFTA is going to go away, or do we, or you think it's going to be a NAFTA 2.0? I'm going to give you a two-part answer, but at the end of the day, we're going to have a NAFTA. So we're going to get there in the following way. Either we compromise, he and and he finally agrees to, and I think we will do some compromises. It's already been leaked to the media that we're compromising on auto, on the content of automobiles. Yep. So we'll either uh, compromise enough that there will be a uh, a revised NAFTA that is announced. The alternative is that he abrogates NAFTA in uh, with great publicity again for the purpose of his base. I stood up to them. I kicked those Mexicans out, you know, that sort of thing. And then he turns around, I would predict, and immediately start bilateral negotiations with Canada. Why? Um, This isn't wishful thinking. It's because we are, there's a lot of goodwill towards Canada. Of course, we're a high-wage country. We're not a low-wage country like Mexico. And he understands that in the Rust Belt and in the states that supported him, his base, and I have visited there very recently, by the way, they hate NAFTA, and they really, really are angry at Mexico. So I could see him abrogating uh, NAFTA to essentially get rid of Mexico and then do a bilateral with Canada. Why? Because it's in the strategic interest of the United States, and that's why so many businesses and so many governors and congressmen and women support NAFTA. So we're going to, I think, end up with a NAFTA, whether it's the renegotiated three-country three NAFTA or a two-party, two-country NAFTA. We're going to end up there at the end of the day. We've got about less than a minute ago. Um, how do you see this in both of your scenarios affecting the markets? Well, first talk about economy and then the markets itself. Here sure. Um, in the short run, the uncertainty hurts, the, hurts us. If he did abrogate... Um, or there was a perception that we were really getting a bad deal, Um, it would manifest immediately on the currency. You would see it go down, not up, even though it's up right now. It would go 
it moved down very quickly, especially if he abrogated because of the uncertainty. But in the medium term, it would it would recover. And and so I am when I say optimistic, I'm, I mean I'm more optimistic in the sense I do believe we're going to have uh, a NAFTA deal because it's in the interest of business on both sides and the interest of consumers on both sides. And so for the medium term, it, the the it won't cause fundamental harm uh, to the dollar. Um, we've got some other issues to face and worry about. Um, and I would argue that's our declining competitiveness mm-hmm. vis-a-vis the U.S. because of carbon taxes and unemployment, uh, uh, you know, CPP premiums going up and, and the uh, minimum wage going up and electricity prices going up and the taxes going down dramatically in the states, which is going to pull capital into the states, pull businesses from Canada and the states. I think that's a bigger risk now than the risk of NAFTA. We're going to get some kind of a NAFTA deal at the end of the day, but then we've got to confront our declining competitiveness because of policies in Canada driving up our costs of doing business, while Trump is driving down the cost of doing business for businesses in the United States. Excellent point to leave it, Ian. Thanks for the analysis. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Been joined by Ian Lee, Associate Professor at Carleton University Sprott School of Business. We've got a seminar coming up. We're going to talk about all the implications of this and how to protect yourself uh, and profit, uh, depending on which way it goes. On Tuesday, February 27th, 7 p.m., at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits, you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400, or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. And stay tuned after the break. We're going to talk about the biggest myths Canadians believe about RRSPs. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. It's RSP season, Faisal. Tis the season. That's right. Um, you know what? <laughs> there was a, an interesting report, a poll actually done uh, by our guys at CIBC, and it was looking at, in the defense of RSPs, it's titled Dispelling Some Common Myths, and there are some, some myths. Do you contribute to an RSP? Do you not contribute to an RSP? Do you put in a TFSA? We're not, right? All of these things. Interesting, the poll indicated there's a lot of confusion about this stuff, and we've got Jamie Golem back, who's a Managing Director, Tax and Estate Planning for CIBC Financial Planning and Advice with us today to help us out. Jamie, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. What are the biggest myths that Canadians believe uh, when it comes to RSPs? Well, the number one myth, and then this is something that we've gotten many questions on, so we wanted to test this with polling, uh, which we were able to prove, but uh, the most common myth is that there's no point in investing in an RSP, after all, when you take the money out of an RSP or a RIF, you're going to pay tax. So yeah. really, uh, they're pointless. And in fact, we went out there with a poll, and uh, nearly 40% of poll respondents really thought that RSPs are pointless because uh, you're going to pay tax in the future. And of course, that is completely inaccurate. All right. So walk us through why it's inaccurate. What, uh, as a general rule of thumb, what do people need to understand from a tax perspective to understand the value of an RSP? We need to understand that when you put money into an RSP, you're actually putting in pre-tax dollars. So in other words, when you earn income, you're actually paying no tax at all on that income. It goes into the RSP and accumulates on a completely tax-deferred basis. And then when you take it out, you do pay tax on withdrawal. But when we go through the math and we have all the math in our report, effectively the rate of return on your net contribution is completely tax-free. In fact, it's just as tax-free as a tax-free savings account, which is another one of our myths. So if I can walk you through just a very simple example, if you have $3,000 of income and your tax rate is 33%, of course, you'll pay no tax on the $3,000 of income if you put all of that into an RSP because you get a tax deduction. So there's no tax at all. The full 3000 goes into the RSP. A 5% rate of return uh, means you'll make $150 uh, inside of the RSP. At the end of the year, it's worth 3150 If you then just cashed in, 
the RSP at the end of the year and your tax rate's exactly the same of 33%, uh, you'll pay $1,050 of tax and you'll net 2100 And that's interesting because uh, if you look at it, uh, the fact is that you earn 3000 of income. Now, if you didn't put it into your RSP, you would have paid tax. So you would really only have 2000 to invest. And at the end of the year, you have 2100 You've made $100. That $100 on the $2,000 net contribution is a 5% right. after-tax rate of return. In other words, you're not paying any tax at all on your investment income. And that is the value of the RSP. And the math is almost exactly the same as the TFSA. The difference being that with the TFSA, you're putting in your after-tax dollars. So, you know, 3000 of employment income becomes only 2000 after, let's say, a 33% tax rate. The 2000 grows by 5% to to 2100 in the TFSA, and that's it. No tax at the TFSA. So RSPs and TFSAs are both equally 100% tax-free. There's not an advantage to one or the other unless your tax rate changes. Right. So in other words, your tax rate at the time of working is going to be different than when you retire. And for most Canadians that are working in sort of middle income or upper middle income or even high income tax brackets, your tax rate will probably be a little bit lower in retirement. In which case, clearly the case is 100% clear that RSPs are the way to go. Because you get a tax deduction at a high rate and you take it in later on in retirement, you take it back at a low rate. When do you use a TFSA versus an RSP? Well, I would argue that TFSAs are good for lower-income Canadians. So I would say, look, as a rule of thumb, anyone in the lowest tax bracket, call it around forty, forty-five thousand dollars, you're already in the lowest tax bracket. You cannot get any lower. So, in other words, if you're making under forty, forty-five thousand dollars a year, I would do the TFSA. Fifty-five hundred dollars a year of room is more than enough. If you're making forty, forty-five thousand, you're paying some taxes. Uh, you probably won't be able to afford fifty-five hundred a year of savings. So I think it's more than enough for after-tax savings. You pay a bit of tax on your income now, but that TFSA grows tax-free for life. And no matter what tax bracket you're in, even if you're in a higher bracket or you potentially could be subject to income clawbacks of you know GIS or other types of things like the GST credit, um, TFSA withdrawals do not show up on your return. So in other words, they would be completely tax-free. And, and that's where TFSAs, I think, make more sense. Okay. So this, this is all the tax game, Dave. Well, I was just going to say the same thing. This right. is all about the, how the tax strategy works. It's a matter of when. Right. When do you make the deposit? When do you withdraw? It's not as simple as RSP or TFSA. If you only have, like in Jamie's example, that one-year time frame, that, that makes sense. But if you have a contribution now which you're withdrawing when you're 65, which is way down the road and you're going to be at a lower tax rate, then you got to look at those numbers, which means you need to get the advice and the analysis done to see if it's better, not just make those decisions because you heard something on uh, on the, yeah, TV, your, on the your, radio your or the TV. Or, yeah, 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 and exactly. so you know, this is where a lot of people get concerned about that. More importantly, we're hearing more and more about how Revenue Canada is being... Um, um, more diligent about um, viewing at people's taxes and so forth. And so Jamie also talked about tax cheats. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you if you read the article. I did read that article. So Jamie, I want to kind of just touch on that as well. There's been a lot of uh, conversation about how Revenue Canada, or CRA, has been going after uh, uh, individuals. We hear about Panama Papers and so forth, but they're really not focused on Panama Papers alone. They're focused on people who are... Average Canadians. Average Canadians, yeah. So tell us what you found in your, in your uh, um, analysis about, uh, about tax cheats and so forth. 
Yeah, well, there were a couple of cases that came out just the last couple of weeks, one in Canada and the U.S., that caused me to really look at this issue in, in a little bit more detail. And, you know, most Canadians are honest, and in fact, uh, we find that, uh, you know, reporting compliance is basically 95% accurate, according to a study about 10 years ago. Now, as most people are honest, and most people are reporting all their income and, you know, deducting appropriate expenses. However, there are some that are not. And uh, people do try to hide things playing what they call the audit lottery, meaning you win the audit lottery if you get away with something and you hope they don't just pick you. And the most common example of that is individuals that are self-employed. Mm-hmm. So people that are self-employed and have to report all their income, uh, in some cases it's a cash business, it's not fully reported. But the more uh, common issue, of course, because cash thing, unless you really keep it in cash in a, under your mattress or keep it in a safety deposit box, actual hard cash, um, you know, income can be traced. Deposits are traced. You know, it's all look, it all can be looked at by CRA. The difference is expenses. So people claim a lot of personal expenses as business expenses, and they literally try to bury that on their return. And that was the example. Uh, one of the cases was a Calgary uh, taxpayer um, who paid his wife $12,000 a year, but on his tax return he hid it as office equipment. <laughs> and hoping that CRA would never look at office equipment sounds reasonable. Of course, they did come in and look at it, and they found that, first of all, it wasn't office equipment. And second of all, it was salary paid to his wife. Third of all, it didn't qualify because his employer did not you know, agree that he was required to hire, out of his own money, an assistant. Second case was a U.S. case. Uh, we had an Oregon accountant who was a tax preparer of other people, and he literally claimed about $60,000 of expenses, uh, including the use of his own home. But in the U.S., there's actually a special form that you have to fill out to claim expenses, and in fact, he never completed the form. And the judge asked him, so why didn't you fill out this form uh, to claim your home expenses? His answer was, well, doing so would have been a red flag for audit. <laughs> crazy thing to say. Of course, both taxpayers lost their cases. And the point of writing the article is really just to show that we do have what's called a tax gap in Canada. And that's something that measures the difference between the total amount of taxes that would have been paid if every Canadian fully paid all their income and took all the appropriate deductions, etc., um, compared to the actual tax actually paid. So for 2015, the tax gap was about $8.7 billion, which sounds a bit high. But it's only about 6.5% of the total 2014 income revenue. So there is a gap. CRA is going after it. And I think, you know, coming back to a full circle, you know, RSPs and TFSAs are 100% approved ways to save on taxes. And you really don't need to start resorting to questionable expenses uh, to try to get ahead of the tax game. Man, thanks, Jamie, very much. We, uh, we, ha- we have to run, but we always appreci- appreciate you clarifying some of these uh, complex issues. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm not sure what I'd be more afraid of, CRA busting me or my wife when I called her office equipment <laughs> busting me. <laughs> Listen, we've got, a, we've got a seminar coming up here. Uh, remind everybody for us. Yeah, you can let Dave know how he would feel <laughs> or how he should feel by telling his wife that she might be office equipment on Tuesday, February 27, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Here's a point where tax is a key thing. How do you 
go through retirement while minimizing tax. We will talk to you about our tax strategy as you go through retirement. Again, on Tuesday, February 27th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seats. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go to our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. Join us after the break as we continue our series on divorce. And we'll talk a little bit about um, the separation of assets. Not an easy topic. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. We're going to continue our divorce, our series on divorce, Faisal, and talk a little bit about uh, uh, gray divorce. And um, we've got a terrific guest to help us understand some of the reasons why people choose to, la- uh, to leave later in life. And then, you know, some of the implications and things that we need to think through or people need to think through as they're making this choice. Debbie Johnson is a lawyer and a partner at Calgary Family Law Associates. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Let's talk a little bit about maybe why, you know, some of the common reasons why you see people choosing to leave, late, particularly later in life. Um, a lot of the reasons usually happen because the children are now out of the house and the, the spouses realize they have different uh, things that they want to do and pursue. And they find out their spouse only likes ABC and the other spouse likes CDE, and that's not uh, working out with each other. Or they might realize they want a different quality of life for the remaining life. It's, there's a lot of different reasons why they leave. Could be mental illness, could be emotional or physical abuse. There's there's a lot of different reasons for people to leave after many many years. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's not even a fair question because there's it's complex, you know, with yeah. respect to everybody's family dynamic, right? Yeah, you know, a lot of people think about when it comes to divorce that. Um, it's about the children. It's about support payments for the children. And they, they kind of focus on that because that's been really talked about a lot in the media and so forth. What people forget is that when, when grade divorce happens, that's divorce after the age of 55, yeah. um, there's other things that matter. So, Debbie, what, what else is at stake when it comes to uh, divorce after the kids have left the home or you're in that 55-plus that, uh, crowd? Well, usually the parties will have either a lot of property or or are in a lower income level, they don't have a lot of property. So we have the the issues with older, the over uh, the grayer, the gray age divorces is division of property, and that's pretty straightforward. And um, whether there's going to be any type of spousal support, those types of issues. You know, it's interesting that you say the division of the property is pretty straightforward. I mean, I've got friends. I wouldn't say um, gray divorce yet, but. You know, we're pushing towards that area, going through a divorce, and that seems to be a very painful piece of it with some very dire, at least as they're going through it, it feels like some very dire financial implications. Um, How do you help people? Exactly. Yeah, walk me through that, right? Well, yeah, you're looking at a group of of people that have – developed a long history with each other <clears throat> and so they're looking at whether they have to, well, how they divide the property they have to find a new place to live they have to tell their family and their friends they have it's all a new thing and, and it's a scary thing a lot of times there's a there's an inequality or a disadvantage on one party more so than the other as far as financial of how they're getting there uh, how they're going to support themselves it's the division of assets that they've worked together for a long time to accumulate. And then a lot of occasions, it's one party wants to leave the marriage and the other party doesn't. And you have those issues, too, where you have the psychology behind of um, deep regret and deep hurt and pain. It's, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing to start doing. So generally, when what we want to do is, is you want to try to make it as easy for them as possible. 
You don't want to have uh, it go into a litigious thing. You don't want it to go into a court because that really does expend all the all the savings that they have for their their later life. You want them to be able to go to a mediation type of situation or an arbitration type of situation where they can get it done quickly and uh, easily. So I've got a couple of questions in regards to that, Debbie. One is, um, for the people who are listening who may not understand what the law in Alberta states about, let's talk about first property, what mm-hmm. is the law state and then what parts are not part of that that uh, quote-unquote matrimonial property? Okay, so usually in those long-term divorces, they didn't usually leave, live together prior to their marriage. So marriage is, the presumption is always a division of 50-50. So whatever was accrued during the marriage is a 50-50 uh, ownership. But in some cases, say, for example, um, my parents, my, my mother may not have been on title or on property on the, on the property. So notwithstanding that, uh, the father or the husband might ha- might have his name on the title on the property, you still have a 50-50 ownership. So regardless of anything, you always have that 50-50 presumption. So then you separate and you have all those things that you have to divide. You have the household the household property and, and the courts really hate dealing with that. So you've got two of everything. You've got pictures which are you're really, really important to both parties. Sometimes the biggest problem between these dividing parties is the pets after a long marriage. The kids aren't there anymore and the pets become the biggest issue. Um you go through uh you go through the um with the separation you go through the pension, like, is there a large pension? Is it in payout already? And and if it's in payout, does that become just a straight spousal support? Is there an equalization payment from the property? Like, there's so many different steps with the property that you want to just take it pretty much one step at a time and just look at it and say, uh, what do I need to divide with my with my partner? And make an assets list, make a liabilities list, all the debt that you might have, and then any exemptions that they might include, which might include an inheritance that one party may have received from their from their relatives that they've kept separate and apart from the family, like those would be exempt. But usually um, the presumption is 50-50. And the, greatest, the second greatest asset is usually the pension. That's right. That's right. So and I think inheritances are coming in more and more for for baby boomers yep. now, and yep. so um, yeah. most that I've spe- I've spoken to or we've met with with clients, most of them I would say um, commingle their in money. They yep. put it together. Yes. They pay down debt. They put it in the sa- joint savings account because they believe that this is now an inheritance and it should be part of the family. What the concern that comes up is during a a divorce, they want to go back and. And, and, and separate that as exempt property. What is your um, understanding or what can you tell our listeners about how that works? The only time you can ever claim it as exempt is if you can follow the money. It's always following the money. So if you had an inheritance of $100,000 and you put it directly onto the house and that house shows a decrease in its mortgage and the equity rises $100,000, that could still be exempt. If you commingle it in things that are just everyday uses, you take the kids to, to Disneyland, you pay off you the, you know, the wife's credit card or your credit cards that were all part of family things, that's part of living and part of being a family, and it's commingled and gone. It's only when you can trace money through the um, bank accounts or through um, the direct deposits from one place to another through property that you can still claim exemptions. Like there's other exemptions too. So say they did live together or say there was a house that was inherited. Um, did the, the 
that uh, one of the parties inherited from their parents, and so both the husband and wife go live in that house, then there becomes other interests that happen with the house. So there's a lot of complexity uh, with uh, determining the exemptions in property-type situations. But if it's a money situation and you put it directly towards something that lasts forever, like um, a house, or not forever, but it can change modes, but still there's property in the end, Mm -hmm. then it still remains an exemption part of it. Hmm. But say, for example, you put your inheritance into a joint title property, you're paying off the joint title, then there's other law that goes with it that says that you've gifted a quarter of it to the other party. Or, well, half of it is your inheritance and half becomes property, which is your gifting in a quarter to the other party. So there's a lot of different little complexities and things that you want to do. And so if you do um, get uh, an inheritance, you want to be careful that you keep it separate and apart from uh, commingling with the family funds. A lot of times we hear about uh, cases where what they thought was an amicable divorce doesn't turn into an amicable divorce for whatever reason. If you cannot sit in front of a mediator or at a kitchen table and figure this out individually, what are other options that are available that individuals need to be aware of? And, and you know, cost is one thing that people talk about. Just as an idea, how, how expensive is it really? Divorces, lawyers are expensive. It's a sad reality. Um, if a person can do a mediation arbitration, I personally don't, wouldn't suggest just straight mediation because you don't have that final decision if the other party doesn't agree and then you've wasted the money and time getting through five or six days of mediation without a final arbitrative decision. So if I was doing it, I'd do a mediation arbitration arbitration decision. There is other things such as the judges do have a judicial dispute resolution, which you get basically get the judge for the day in, um, in a private courtroom with you, not in a courtroom, but in a room with the uh, other party and their counsel. Some judges do do it without counsel, and so you just have to figure out which or how it can get done that way. Um, the The problem with with divorce is that if it deals with matrimonial property, it must. The statute says it must go through. It's determined by trial or agreement. So you have the opportunity to make an agreement and sign off of it and make an agreement that you want. Like you might get a, a lump sum payment, like you might take the house and the other person, you know, keeps some of the uh, RSPs, making sure the tax differential is there. Um, you you want to make sure you're you're dividing apples and oranges. The um, And so then you can do the JDR. Uh, like I was saying, the, the, the statute says it's by trial or agreement. And that's what you want to do. You want to come to it by agreement. Otherwise, it just continues going on and on until there is actually a trial that defines it. If there is no property, if people can agree to the property and you get uh, an agreement done, you have to have independent legal advice uh, to make sure that you know all your rights in the agreement. Then what's left is just with the divorce would just be a matter of the equalization of um, the spousal support if there, if that's something that needs to equalize the positions between the parties. and uh, And that would be pretty much it. So Debbie makes it sound uh, pretty uh, straightforward. It's very complex for a lot of people, a lot of emotions involved. So Dave, we do need to make sure everybody who's who's going through this situation get the legal advice, get the financial advice, uh, and so forth. Debbie, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Well, they can look us up on the webpage at Calgary Family Law Associates, or they can call me at 403-232-0838. Debbie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.
We've been doing, uh, joined by uh, Debbie Johnson. She's a lawyer and a partner at Calgary Fa- uh, Family Law Associates. We've got a seminar coming up, my friend, and uh, you know what? More and more, we're dealing with a post-divorce care issue uh, in retirement. So, uh, you know, let's uh, remind everybody about um, about when that's happening and, and how that fits into the retirement puzzle. One of the biggest fears of people over the age of 50 is the unknown of the future, is what does their retirement look like? No matter what their situation may be, we're going to show you a strategy that can bulletproof your retirement on Tuesday, February 27th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits you need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or go to our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. Don't forget, you can access all of our past segments on morethanmoneyradio.com, or you can have them delivered directly to you by searching for More Than Money CHQR on iTunes or in your favorite podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.